Okay, okay. So I just had to swish a little water around my mouth. First name James gets very upset with me uh, when I don't do that because I make a lot of lip-smacking sounds, apparently. Uh, welcome to this. You're listening to the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the world's adventure, culture, sports, music, innovation, trying to understand the hurdles that they overcame and, and the tips and the tricks that made them better on their journey. And we've got a really interesting guest this week. Uh, his name is Pasquale Rotella. And um, you might have not heard his name, but you've definitely heard what he's produced. He is the founder and chief initiator and creative officer and mastermind behind the Electric Daisy Carnival through his company, Insomniac. Um, it is the biggest electronic dance music um, event, I would say, uh, in the United States uh, last year attracted something like 135,000 people to really a carnival atmosphere and the flame throwing lights and uh, incredible main stages in Las Vegas. Um, and of course, power packed with, with DJ talent. And I wanted to get him on because number one, EDC is coming up in June, but also to talk about kind of how this kid uh, from LA, who was just kind of running around being a party promoter at a time when that wasn't a cool thing, um, how he built this business and how he went from, you know, kind of a dreamer who was enamored of, of you know, the carnivalesque life and all the crazy freaks and weirdos he saw on the Venice Beach boardwalk, how that guy evolved into the owner of a, a business that was acquired recently, well, a couple of years ago now, for uh, close to $50 million uh, by Live Nation. So we talk for a good hour. We have a nice chat about, you know, his his growth as, as a young man in that scene. Uh, we talk a little bit about, um, you know, overcoming the obstacles that, that he faced. Um, we talk about the, the difficulty and the challenge in maintaining that sense of community that's so important to that scene. Um, he was a bit jet-lagged, which is fine, because he had just arrived a couple of days previous from Japan, the baller lifestyle that he has. But uh, it turned out to be a really interesting chat. I hope you guys like it. Did you, uh, did you used to go to Ren Fairs? I have been to Ren Fairs in the past. I'm attracted to, you know, the... The concept and yeah. the, the theme behind it all. Um, I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I feel like Ren Fairs would kind of make a little bit of a comeback because of that. Yeah. Because I, I went to one when I was like 12 or 13, and and then it's like the first rule about Ren Fairs is don't talk about Ren Fair to other people <laughs> in high school. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, for sure. It's like, it's... Uh, it's a it's a wonderful trip back into ye old English times in like the, the lamest way possible. Yeah. But but they go full on, right? They go full on, and actually, middle um, it, the event was called Middlelands. Is called Middlelands. It was the first year we've ever done it, and it was very inspired by Game of Thrones. And and in, in the middle of watching Game of Thrones, discovering the venue and it just being the most epic venue I've ever seen. So I had to. Had to do it. Where does this love of like of pageantry of you know, I mean costumes, dressing up. I mean these are all elements of EDM and EDC as well. Where where does it come from with you? Venice Beach, California. Is that where it all? <laughs> really? Yeah. No, we're not talking Snapchat Venice Beach now. We're talking old school Venice. Old Beach. school Venice Beach, California. When would that be? That would be in the early to mid eighties. I imagine it was a little bit different back then. 
Yeah, it was awesome. I haven't really been there, actually, to tell you that it's not awesome now. I, I, I It's been a very long time since I've checked it out, but, yeah, that's where I would get lost and discover art and craziness as a kid and dancing and music was it where would they where would they party there <laughs> everywhere <laughs> i mean i mean they would party all along the boardwalk you know there was uh, a guy that used to bring out this well first of all everyone had a ghetto blaster yeah during that time and shout out to the early 80s by the way yeah that's a little right. bit sad to see the ghetto blaster go i have to say yeah i love ghetto blasters i, I collect them actually Old school ghetto. Yeah, I mean, they got to be collector's pieces at this point, too, yeah. right? And yeah, worth right. something eventually. I don't know if they're worth anything. I pay a lot for them, but I don't know that they're <laughs> worth anything. And I, um, yeah, I'm really attracted to them. That whole, you know, era, it really helped mold me and, and helped me discover my love for music and the rave culture. So it you had ghetto blasters and would set them up on the boardwalk. I mean, it was that spontaneous. I wish I had a ghetto blaster when I was going down to the boardwalk. Um, when I got a little older, kind of after the, I was going down to the boardwalk every day. Um, later on in life, I did get a ghetto blaster with detachable speakers, and it was the raddest thing ever. And I got so much love for it in my school that I was. Um, I had at that point lit, moved to the Palisades, and uh, it was very different than Venice. But yeah. I brought a little Venice with me, Good. and. But, you know, so yeah, I was I was down there hanging out, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. By yourself or with friends or with their folks? By myself. I was supposed to be looking after my sister who was 12 or 13. Because so I was the man. Brother. I was the man of the house. Italian. <laughs> yeah, Italian. So your parents are both Italian? My parents are both Italian. I'm the only one that was born here, actually, in my family. Do you speak Italian? I, Io parlo italiano, non troppo bene, ma yeah. yeah, I speak it. Pretty well. I understand it better than I speak it. I used to respond in English, and my family would speak to me in Italian. Right, right. I, I mean, that's highly effective when you're a kid, I find, as well, having, like, a secret language to communicate to people with. Yeah. Describe Venice for me back then. Paint the scene. Well, there was freaks everywhere, uh, you know, performers everywhere, art everywhere, dancing. You had the roller skaters listening to, you know... Um, Prince and and you know doing their thing. They had the break dancers a little to the side of that. Um, it was the first time I was exposed to electro in, in the early days of hip hop. Uh, my favorite song that used to get me most hyped down there was uh, "Jam on It" by Nucleus. Yep. And you know there was Rastas and homeless and surfers and skaters and breakers and roller skaters and weightlifters and just artists of all kinds. Right. It, it was people from all over the place. Anywhere, anyone that didn't fit in would go to Venice. And you were like, and you were, you felt an immediate kinship to that. I couldn't. I mean, I would go down there. I'd go down there every day. I was, n I, I'm a big people watcher. I love, I want to, and I have a million questions like, where are you from? How did you make what you just, you know, what you just displayed here? Um, you know, how's life? How's your life? Um, are you happy? Are you sad? I, I just like talking to people and 
my mind was blown every day down down there. You know, I would I would talk to the vendors, I would talk to the tourists, I would talk to the, you know, anyone I could. And, and you were ju- it was just curiosity. You weren't trying to get like you weren't going in a direction of like, you know, how can I recreate this wherever I go? Or it was just curiosity guiding you. Yeah, I was just curious. Yeah, I was a curious. I'm still very curious. You know, I, I would uh, want to know about people. And I would, it would, it was entertaining to me to, to learn about people and how different they are from one another, and it was just interesting to meet people. I enjoyed it. It made me happy to s- s- speak with people. Yeah, and just see what their life was like, and and compare it to yours, and just how very different it was. I imagine as well, you know. Yeah. Um, was it a pretty conservative uh, household with the Italian father? <laughs> oh, uh, no, no, my parents would were not very concerned i mean they you know they let us run around the venice boardwalk on our own at a very young age america was safe compared to where they came from so as crazy as that might sound to you know people today it was very they were very comfortable with it and um my mom was always dancing on table shoot my mom was the first one dancing on tables and she would entertain people at the restaurants we had a restaurant uh, down there a deli called La Rotella on Abbot on Ocean on Ocean yeah cuz Abakini was named something different back then too right it was like West Washington Boulevard or something yeah, like yeah. Something I remember like that. hearing that okay. it changed so you helped out in the restaurant as well and yeah I'd wash dishes I would busboy yeah and when I got a little older I would wait tables yeah getting into the hosting yeah. you know there's there's a pattern emerging almost right absolutely uh, but, yeah Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, but uh, I mean, Venice Beach was just a melting pot of creativity and craziness. Uh, I appreciate it so much that my parents, you know, were in that area at that time. And it was really my introduction to, you know, all different forms of art and dancing and my love for people. And tolerance also, right? Like that, that, that it's such a that something like that can exist, you know, with people, you know, tolerating uh, each other's idiosyncrasies and being different and, and all of that. I mean, that must have been, like, an incredibly important lesson. So much diversity down there was crazy, especially, I mean, during that time, it was, I mean, I, I, again, I haven't been down there for a long time, but it, it was crazy. It was, and, and I think that's why, you know, definitely the music, you know, when I went to my first underground party, my first rave party, it brought me back to my early days in Venice Beach on the music side, but also all different walks of life coming together, expressing their individuality, you know, wilding out, you know, wilding out. Wilding, wilding out, yeah, and just, you know, good good energy, good vibes, you know. What was it like at that point? Because I, I remember reading that for you, it was kind of your first, the first kind of party you threw was almost um, to to move away from what was currently considered, you know, kind of electronic music parties at the time or warehouse parties at the time because they started getting a little bit methy. Is that the right <laughs> word? Yeah, they were dark and shady yeah. and cracked out. Right, right. And I missed. Loved the music, hated the environment. Loved the music, hated the environment, and also missed other genres of dance music that had uh, been created in, in recent past at that time. So in... In late 92, 93, you know, things were either really, you know, there was some hardcore stuff going on, and then there was, like, Deep House. There was, like, a split 
and there was so much you know in between that was lost like there wasn't a lot of break beats at the time and the house scene was both scenes were pretty cracked out and at one point the hardcore scene died and it was just just this underground deep house you know there was cholos and speed was rampant through the party and just people with like sores like itching it was just it was just you know in corners no lighting it was just it was crazy. And you were what in your teens at that point? Yeah, I was in my teens. You must have been freaked out, man. Yeah, no, I I felt very comfortable in the environment actually because I I grew up you know with with that. I mean, you know, just living in L.A. and just on the West Side in Venice. There's you know there's gangsters. I was friends with the, the cholos and the gangsters that were at the at the parties. I knew that it wasn't as and they were nice people. Like they weren't like hurting each other or anything like that. There was a few times where people would get a little crap, you know, weird because they would be up for too many days or whatever. But I wasn't scared necessarily. It just wasn't a good energy, and it wasn't as fun as it used to be. Right, right. And I wanted to bring that back, and that's that's kind of what you know why. And there wasn't a, also there wasn't a lot of events going on. There was it was more after hours. Right. So people you used to go to the underground or the rave, and then it would get busted because it was normally illegal and you'd be happy if it went to you know even if it went to like four or five in the morning you'd be pretty stoked it didn't you know sometimes if it went to sunrise it was like best night ever yeah but then you'd go to the after hours and those were usually in semi-legal spots versus completely illegal spots like the big one-offs at the time and the semi-legal spots were usually pretty reliable and because the big parties were starting to get busted so often you'd end up going a lot of people would just skip the party and go to the after hours. And that started happening. And it just, you know, just, it, and then drugs started getting, you know, bad. And it was just, it was just a shady kind of. Scene. And it's, but what's interesting is uh, instead of abandoning the scene, you know, and instead of saying like, ah, oh, you know, not my deal, you know, it's not my deal. It's, just, it's all changed, man. It used to be different, you know. You actually went and did something about it. Where did that come from? Well, before I did something about it, I actually explored other scenes, too. Uh, there was a, a party crew scene. So I really was missing, you know, the, the culture that I was, you know, that I first experienced when I went to, to my first event. And uh, I went to the party crew scene, and that was more on the east side. And everyone had, and I, I came from the graffiti scene, so I was kind of familiar with, like, crews and 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 uh people you know passing up and naming themselves and all that kind of stuff and these were party crews and it was all fun it was pretty cool it was pretty fun at first but then the um it kind of got it was a, it was kind of there was tag banger kind of gangster vibes in in that scene as well tag banger translate uh someone in between a gangster and a tagger taggers graffiti artists that you just know. throw up tags, no, not mural yeah, art. Yeah, it was more art. You know, they would battle on walls and Got stuff it. like that. Yeah. Gangsters were a little bit more um, confront. I mean, listen, I, I saw graffiti writers that were super confrontational and, and pretty gangster. They weren't t- tagged, labeled as tag bingers. But that was just kind of the what the media had hyped it up as at Got one it. point. Yeah, they were like cholo, gangster, and also taggers and graffiti artists. So there was like you know where. where Graffiti writers in the past were known as like artists, just doing their thing and and uh, not not gang banging and, f- right, and fighting right. and stuff like that. Okay. So, um, but yeah, the the party crews had beef with one another, and I w- I witnessed a couple shootings and one in front of me that was pretty gnarly. 
over on the Big Tommies in East LA on Alvarado and I forget what the cross street is over there, but um, early morning hours, I'm guessing. Uh, those events didn't go all night. Yeah, yeah. They it wasn't like the West Side scene, where it was it wasn't it was different than the rave scene. It was yeah, it was the party crew scene. Those parties would go end at like two in the morning. There'd be in nightclubs and sometimes people's backyards. They'd do these big ditching parties that would be in the daytime. Everyone would skip school, go to the ditching party. But it just got there. That was got that got a little crazy. I was in a party crew called Latin Pride. They justified it because I was Italian. Yeah, so they accepted me. <laughs> that's, Latin, that's extended Latin yeah. in America, let's just say. Yeah, so, you know, but it, was, it just got a little, that got a little gnarly. Yeah. And um, uh, there was good, you know, there was music, you know, that I liked that was there. And um, people weren't all tweaked out, but they were, you know, busting out gats every once in a while. So <laughs> that was a short-lived. And I started, uh, I did my first party at the end of 92 called Unity Groove. And then... Um, my second party was the first Insomniac. Right. And I did that every Friday in a different warehouse. And it was word of mouth, right? Or, or were you out handing out flyers on the street? I was handing out flyers. So it was at the birth of Pasquale Rotella, salesman? <laughs> that was the birth of, you know, Insomniac, and, and I, I'm like a salesman. I never, you know, I never looked at myself that way, but I, I was just, I just, I was really believed. All right, uh, really, let's say evangelist. Okay. How about preacher? I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take Rave that. preacher. Preacher, preacher of raves. Yeah. Um, but was it, uh, it, it, and you really believed in the culture, and it, you really, um, you saw the value in what it brought to you, but also brought to others. Um, was there a community at that time already growing that you could tap into? There was the remains of the rave scene. It was really pretty much, it was dead. I had to search out people that, appreciated the culture and loved it as much as I did. They weren't going out like they were, if at all. Yeah, it's, it's, it wasn't like a market opportunity you saw, in other words. No, it was dead. At one point, even even the like the tweaked out after our scene had died at one point. Right. And there was not really much going on. There was one thing called um, Family Groove that went on downtown. I think it would, it would start at three, like 2, 3 in the morning and go till... 12 1 in the afternoon and every once in a while there was this uh after after hours that would pop up called sketchpad and you know that that was kind of it was the scene was limited to that and there wasn't that many people going to that right, so right. i would go to venice beach i would go to melrose i would drive down to san diego orange county you know and just look search out people and talk to them about the event and there would be a lot of times I remember people saying, oh, that's, I don't go to those anymore. Those get busted. Those are whack, you know, bad experience. Because at one point, not only did the parties get busted, but there was a lot of shady people that had got involved. There was the tweak. There was the shady promoters, which was pretty much all of them. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it reminds me of uh, Tony Wilson, you know, in, in Manchester in the 80s, how, you know, it started you know, the rave scene over there started as, as this very pure thing and then got corrupted quite easily, you know, with the with the drugs. And then he eventually invited the drug deals into the club, right, into the factory in order to kind of at least control some of the flow and benefit from it, I suppose, yeah. as well. Um, so it's, it's always like that that juxtaposition of the two, you know, must have been difficult to kind of navigate and also overcome. Yeah, you know, I, f I feel like the first parties that I went to, the crowd, there was was really pure and 
experiencing it, unlike even the guys behind the scenes got to experience it. Because we walked into it, uh, you know, it wasn't shady. That even even in the early days, I don't know. I mean, there were some producers that were pretty into it, but majority of it was like they were trying to make money or. You know, the magic was on the dance floor and the people that had, that were going to these parties. Right. And um, it had developed into something, I think, that the people behind the scenes, the first generation of kind of people behind the scenes, they, I don't even think they knew what they had, how right. special it was. And that's why it deteriorated because no one was pushing for it. They were just trying to make as much money as they could. They weren't trying to push things forward. And when things started going south, they just washed. They just washed their hands of it and just moved on. To when when did you realize what you had in that scene? When did you see the potential in it? Something bigger than simply, you know, a couple of warehouse parties. I want to say the first day that I went to one. I mean, it was life changing for me. I felt so. I I I couldn't think about anything else, and it changed my life. And I knew how, I felt this is the most special thing in the world. I want everyone to know about it. I was promoting for events I had nothing to do with that I was just going to. I, I got, you know, the first party I, I rolled with a couple of friends that brought me. The second party I had taken, I think I rounded up, you know, four carloads of, of friends that hadn't experienced it yet. And what's their reaction? Everyone's, everyone loved it. Everyone's minds were blown. And I was yeah. so proud to be able to, I wanted to show them this new world. And I mean, I guess that was addictive. You're like, I want, you know. I want to be able to do this continuously to ever bigger and bigger crowds. Is that really what drove your kind of building at the beginning, your 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 community building? Because that's really what it's about, right? At the end of the day, it's about pulling people from, you know, people who might feel isolated or, or people who don't have a connection to others, um, pulling them together, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That was my first connection with it, but not so much in a promoter way. I wanted to share, I want to bring my friends together and have them experience this with me because you know to experience something that something so awesome on your own is cool but i wanted to share it with with others and i was really you know i didn't realize i was promoting because uh, i was just, it was from excitement but i was really bringing all my friends to these parties so that we could have a great time together and and uh connect with this this amazing happening yeah when did it start professionalizing for you well, I, I mean, even when producing my first events, I thought it was going to be a party throwing a party. So I, I, I really was in the same mindset that I wanted to be a part of this, share this with everybody. It wasn't really coming from a place of business or even from a place that, oh, I'm going to put work in. It was like, this is going to be awesome. Let's do this. Let's get it together. It doesn't exist anymore. It's not happening anymore. We can't let that happen. Let's come together. And uh, create this amazing place for people to, to 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 come together at, and it you know it was pretty early on that I learned that it's not that fun <laughs> organizing the party. Everyone it's not wants, a party throwing the party. Everyone wants to own a bar. Nobody actually wants to manage it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was worth it to me because after my first parties, people were so thankful, and I, although I wasn't able to be there with them, like I was. In the, in the early days, I was imagining myself, me organizing the part, booking the DJ, finding the venue, and then raving all night till, till the morning with them all. <laughs> and yeah. I ended up having to, you know, manage, you know, the, the operations and deal with the police and 
um, whatever else popped up. So that must have harshed your mellow. Yeah, yeah, I was a little bit like you know, I mean, it was listen, it, it, yeah, it was pretty pretty quick that I realized that, but I, it made sense, of course, and I was excited to do that because I knew, I felt, I knew that I was providing this amazing experience yeah. that people will remember forever. And and then when you get the thank yous and the no, and, and the nods and stuff like that, it feels awesome. To, to be able to give something like that to people. So what and what did you learn about yourself in those early days? That I had a lot to learn. <laughs> <laughs> um, I learned from the early days, you know, that if something will go wrong, uh, can go wrong, will, it will go wrong. You gotta, you know, just think about every scenario possible and be, you know, ten steps ahead of any situation. And to not cut corners. Well, I mean, you're also known for throwing no expenses spared kind of parties. Some would say at the at the cost of your own profit, right? I mean, at least initially, it was it was just kind of you were throwing like these massive events that that really were extravagant, right? And where did like weren't you weren't looking at it as a businessman? At one point, Insomniac was known. There was jokes, you know, about it being a nonprofit organization for many years. <laughs> and I know it's crazy, and people can't understand this and can't relate to this. But I lived at my mom's house, and I was high on life, um, high on music, friends. Friendship was everything to me. Having a good friends, and I just that made me happy. Happiness didn't come with. Uh, bags of money and I was happy when I was on Venice Beach when I you know scraped up a couple bucks for a slice of pizza the giant ones down there uh, you know I was stoked and watching break dancers and trying to break dance and I mean that there's nothing better than there was nothing better than that and this was just a different a different you know version of that yeah and yeah. Of course, you know, I, you know, l- later I, I, um, understood that it was a, well, you know, early on I understood it was a business, but it was a business that I was glad to, to jump into and I had to put my business cap on and I had to, I, I had, you know, it's, it, sometimes it's hard to be, to have your business hat on and then not let your creativity get affected because it's, it, they, sometimes they can clash and, um, was it difficult to balance those two? A- absolutely. Even today, I mean, you, even you, today, because you're very creative, right? Like that's your and you you vibe off creativity and you're inspired by creativity. And so, you know, at what point did you realize, okay, I need to actually learn a bit about the numbers side of it? I mean, I, I've known th- that the numbers, the number side of it, matter from the very beginning. I just knew that I wasn't going to be that guy <laughs> to to live them <laughs> because right, right. I knew that you know, even when I was doing forty thousand people. My budgets were a mess. The numbers were a disaster. I would just get things because I needed them, not because I could afford them. There's a big um, area over there that doesn't have a carnival ride, and there's uh, the sound system. You know, it, it, there's I want there's another genre of music that I think is dope. We're gonna add it another stage. Nocturnal at the Empire Polo Fields. I think I had like I don't know ten stages or something like that of music before the genres I'd split up into a million different. Right. You know. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, how many stages would you have to have today in that scene? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it was just, I mean, I, it was about the party. It was about um, the experience. It was about the music. It was about the people that came first to me. I knew that it could make business sense 
down the road when I had, and that I had to make it make sense because I wanted to keep doing what I was doing. And I have an amazing team behind me now that lives and breathes numbers every day. And I know more now and, and deal with it now more than I did back in the day. Yeah. But it was not the it was not the first thing on my mind. I mean, you know what? I wouldn't be here if I was working off those spreadsheets, because no one that no one that was kept going forward, because it just didn't make any sense. And as stupid as that might seem, or crazy, or risky, you know, f- it, it was more intuition and more my passion that said this is gonna this is gonna make sense, and this is not you know, and and um, I believed really what it came down to and you probably also thought that hey if it all goes to shit at least i had an incredible ride doing exactly what i loved yeah absolutely but i didn't believe it would ever go to shit I, why I, why not because i mean genres music genres rise and fall popularity you know back then it wasn't you know now we have like live music festivals everywhere and it's you know it's a boom time for it but that wasn't the case in the 90s necessarily and you know the the ease of travel and all of that that's that's made it possible today wasn't around back then um but you saw a future well it wasn't about being popular or it wasn't about getting rich off of it it was about having the best time possible and that could have been with 100 people or 100,000 people so success was not in you don't have to worry about the popularity of it or whether it's accepted on a mass scale or whether it's going to keep growing or not i mean i've been through m- many bubbles for uh, you know yeah. people talk about the it, bubble bursting it? inflating and then bursting yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, i've been through continue the metaphor for, yeah i've been through like six of those and i keep doing what i love yeah. i don't get distracted by the hype or the trends because i'm doing i'm doing i'm in i'm a fan first and i just keep doing it because it makes me happy yeah and of course i want to be successful in life and i have a family now and you know i want to do good but you know there's uh i I find that balance and i and i you know i i wouldn't be good at i'm not good at things that i'm not passionate about yeah so i I mean it's 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 interesting because somebody no, somebody who has never gone to a rave, somebody who's never really understood what a promoter is, that sort of a thing, um, would kind of look at your career arc and think, like, how can someone who went from, you know, promoting parties because he loved to party to a <laughs> uh, businessman whose company got acquired for a $48.1 million dollar, uh. Uh, controlling stake a few years ago? You know what? What is that? What? What did? What did you? What did you have to do to get to that point? F- follow my passion. I mean, that's that's what I did. I surround yourself with smart people. Yeah, abso- absolutely. I mean, you're only as good as as your team, and I have an amazing team. But never giving up. You know, following your passion. Not allow. Don't get distracted by. I mean, so many people have, I've crossed paths with that said this is never going to work. My, you know, my fa- my dad being one of them. What are you doing with your life, right? Your dad who opened a restaurant. My dad who has, has was a handyman construction okay. worker, right. yeah, and right. and also was in the restaurant business, right? Which is like not incredibly um, consistent either, right? <laughs> it's a tough business. It's yeah, it's a very tough business yeah. as well. As much as my mom always believed. And it was happy with whatever. As long as I was happy, she was happy. Yeah. And my dad, my dad, same way, but he wanted me to do something that would, you know, allow me to pay my own rent. 
at one point. Right, <laughs> so, right. But, um, yeah, it is, it's a crazy, was, it's was a crazy Was there a sense story. of, like, did you have to convince him for yourself, or was it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I let him know that I knew what I was doing and that I had confidence in it growing and, and that it was all going to be all right and I was, that it, it, was, it was, you know, it was going to be a successful venture. Right. I felt that in my heart the, the whole time. Yeah. But it was that even when I was doing a couple thousand people. So you uh, call your uh, the people who attend the the festivals. You call them the headliners, right? You're famous for that, um, which is really interesting because it's a reverse from like the early '80s DJ as God, put him on a pedestal, all worship him kind of approach to electronic music, right? New Order um, when those bands were coming, when those acts were coming through. Um, why did you switch it like that? The the rave scene was always about the music and the art of it all. There was props at the fe- at the underground parties. The music, people would lose themselves in it. There was, people would dance in, in, in all different kinds of ways. You'd even have, you know, B-boys and B-girls and people just getting freaky and cr- creating their own wild dance moves. And just like Venice Beach, you'd go into a, onto the boardwalk or into a party and there was art everywhere, people expressing their individuality everywhere and the music would hype people up to to feel comfortable and and and, and get it and they would get into it through the music. And the DJ it, of course very important the music it, he's the one who's playing the music. Right. right. But you wouldn't sit there and stare at him. And you wouldn't at times even know where he was in the room, but you would know. I would know where the where where the dance circle was, and I would um, skip through the party like and, and dance through the party and go to the speaker stacks where the music was coming out of. We we used to actually praise the speakers, which wasn't that smart because we we were, we were right at the <laughs> the loudest place in the and whole. you can barely hear now exactly <laughs> or most people <laughs> exactly. Can. Yeah, yeah. And um, because the music was coming out of the speaker stacks st- and we couldn't afford to fly the sounds, we'd stack them on the ground. Actually, w- we would advertise our parties like the largest wall of sound you've ever seen in your life, you know, 10,000, um, you know, uh, megawatts or 10 billion megawatts <laughs> of sound in your face, you know. And people would go to the speaker stacks and they would be climbing all over it and patting the, the bass bins, climbing in them climbing on them jumping off the top that was like where but people were interacting with each other they weren't standing and staring at the speaker stacks right so i was just gonna you know when when dance music had blown up i noticed that the parties had changed in a big way and people were behave they were acting as if they were at a rock show or an arena event your dance music blowing up just uh, to get the timeline would be when Late nineties, early two thousands. No, it would be. Uh, well, it's blown. It's it's blown up a few different times. Right, but right. The, uh, when I saw this big change was yeah. in two thousand, maybe eight, okay. something like that, around then, during the Col- L.A. Coliseum days. Um, Swedish House Mafia, you know, at you know during oh, that whole time. Guys, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And you know there was this big crossover, and people that were going to hip hop or rock shows or arena events or whatever it is, they were coming to the festivals. 
then where's the DJ? Let's stand and watch the DJ. Let's not dance. Oh, for cell phones, you know, or we didn't have to get used to used to have cell phones, which so everyone would stand there and film and and the crowd it, the energy was level was down. It was the opposite of what like that energy, that raw energy that I love so much and that energy you'd feel on the boardwalk where people were w walking in every which direction and you know, looking at performers over here, watching the dancers over there, dancing themselves, you know, and it was just kind of this, it was becoming a concert. And um, I, that scared me because I felt like that was killing everything that I love, the, the energy that I love, and that people would soon be disappointed because, you know, if you're someone who's going out for, let's say you're going out for five years, ten years, you're only going to sit there and watch a guy with the headphones putting his head down for so long and be entertained. If you know, it, it feels very different when you're there waiting to be entertained versus being into the music. And some people would maybe be, do both at the same time. Right. But it, I just felt like it was a lot more fun, and they're depriving themselves of really experiencing it on 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 at at the fullest level. You know, by just kind of waiting to be entertained versus really losing themselves in the music and exploring and and. So that's, that, you know, I, I just wanted to keep that magic that was there. That was an attempt to do that. People thought, you know, I got a lot of crap for it. People were saying, I'm trying to not book big DJs anymore. I'm, I'm trying to save money and call the fan the headliner so I don't get the big guy. I never I never was doing, never did that. I wanted the all the DJs that everyone wants to see, the DJs that I want to see. I want the best producers up there. But I just didn't want people standing there. And uh, I wanted them to, to have an amazing time and... And um, that was that was where that came from. How do you scale without corrupting that original promise that that music gave you? Like, how do you scale how do, when money comes in? That's that's such a delicate dance for you, especially someone who loves it so much and saw so much value in it, and see still to to this day sees so much value in it. How do I scale? I, I would say that I just, I mean, I still think about these ev events like I'm building them for myself, and. I'm because I'm a fan. I'm just a, a regular fan from the dance floor. I, I, you know, think about. Yeah, I get bored of things, and and I, and I, I imagine that that's how other fans will feel. So I'm always just investing in switching things up and pushing things forward. And what can we do different? And doing the unexpected with the events is is important. Focusing on different genres. And not not only genres that are popular, but genres that maybe have been forgotten. You know, like I'm really into breakbeats, and we're doing a breakbeat party this. Oh, this is being recorded at a different time, isn't it? Yeah. When's the party though? It's we Saturday. might we here in the booth might want to come. It's it's Saturday. It's tickets this aren't sa tickets aren't selling very well actually. Uh, <laughs> okay. it's a, but it's okay, uh, you yeah. know, because I love the sound. Yeah. And that genre needs love. Love and. Um, you can bring everyone you want and put on the guest list. <laughs> no problem. But it's a breakbeat party. I got um, Crafty Cuts and the Freestylers. And, you know, I've the early uh, electro, you know, um, you know, uh, Africa Bombada and um, all the old breakdance um, tunes, th those were all breakbeat, you know. And, right. and yeah. I'm still really attracted to that. But yeah. it's not very popular these days. I love drum and bass. That's not very popular either. But we push all these sounds, and that's something that y is unique to Insomniac is we're not just 
even when EDM was huge, the the genre when people there's you know, we we weren't just booking the the big EDM guys. We were doing techno. We were doing trance house. So we, we you know we're always pushing things forward and we're committed to all the different cultures and scenes within the dance music. And for movement. you, is it is it a bit also kind of keeping it fresh as well? Because I mean, you've been doing this now for let me do math, more than 20 years, right? Um, almost 30 years, probably. Uh, is it just, <laughs> is it about, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Is crazy to think about that? Yeah. That's three, the first time let's anyone's it, ever said that. That's let's put all, it another way, three decades. Yeah. You've been doing this for almost three decades. Yeah, that's crazy. Did you ever think the 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 music had a shelf life of this long? I did. I, 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 this music's so good to me, and there's so many different styles. I, I felt, you know, I always felt that certain genres, genres would have their moments and things would progress but I, it just keeps going and going surely you're bored man i mean it's been <laughs> it's been kind of the same you know you've you've been building this and and it's and it's you know, like you said there's been six bubbles you know which is probably a good name for like a stage or like an <laughs> act or something but but you know you it's you've seen it go up you've seen it go down you've seen the you know the, the police investigations into it deaths you know the whole debate around it that sort of a thing like why <laughs> how do you how do you keep it fresh for you how do you keep it motivated how do you keep motivated to to continue to build this scene well it's always changing mm. uh, i'm definitely not bored i'm excited and there's so much that I haven't been able to do that that I want to do when it comes to what we can do with these events. I mean, it, it's come so far. I mean, there wasn't even festivals in the United States. There was raves. And I love seeing, you know, when I look at Coachella, when I look at Lollapalooza, I think about if it wasn't for raves, like none of this, we didn't have a festival scene. Like Woodstock killed it. No one wanted to touch festivals. And, um, did Woodstock kill it? I mean, I don't. I wasn't there, but it seemed like yeah. Whenever when I first started, you know, doing events, yeah. people would be like, "Oh yeah, we don't want one of those here." You know, Woodstock. It was a famous co- event that that the producers and the authorities lost control of. So when we were growing and doing, you know, ten thousand people, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, when I would approach farmers or property owners to host a festival rave they were like oh, we're not gonna have woodstock over here no you're not gonna trick me i know about these things you know and then when rave came up you know on the news and stuff like that it was the raves but yeah it was mass gatherings just weren't happening you know it was arenas we didn't have general admission really festivals happening the closest thing to it was like Lollapalooza that, that wasn't going on anymore that was really more like tour, like shed stops. Right. But there wasn't in the middle of the city as well. So it was almost like a, it was almost like like a concert. There were circuit. concerts. Yeah, yeah there were yeah. concert circuits. Yeah. They weren't festivals. So we didn't really. Uh, Europe has never stopped having festivals since. I mean, Glastonbury has been going on forever. They they've had they've t- you know it's saturated. It's overly saturated over there. F- Ten years ago, where we didn't have a scene going on, but the rave scene push things forward and i'm not you know it doesn't i don't think it gets enough acknowledgement but it definitely you know there was hundreds of promoters producing events every week you know every weekend all across the country right and they were pushing boundaries and they were renting ski resorts and doing warehouses and open fields and 
um, dry lake beds. That sounds cool. Yeah, and like and salt and flats and that sort of. Yeah, thing. and, and get and the Mormons partying in Salt Lake City. And it, it, <laughs> yeah, nice. Get them raving. Yeah, so it was you know, and and now you see fe- you have festivals all over the United States. Too many. In some areas, there are. Yeah, there's a lot. Do you think we're gonna that bubble's gonna burst eventually too? I think it's ha- I think it's ha- it's happened or is happening. There's some festivals that haven't survived that that aren't around that were around two two years ago. How do you escape that fate? Then? Well, I just keep thinking uh, thinking of ways as again as a fan, just constantly trying to entertain myself and thinking that staying I- I- innovative will also attract others so keep pushing forward and you're a father of how many now two or one i have uh two kids with uh my wife holly madison yeah congrats Thank uh you. how how does that work as a dad of two is creating nightlife scenes you know a, a, in fact a uh you know, a, a type of music that rewards people for staying up all night and staying out all night. Like, how do you how do you slip into the mind of a eighteen year old trying to experience it for the first time? Well, I still feel like um, I haven't changed much from back in the day, so it's not that hard. Real, I mean that that's the that's the truth. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just I feel like a kid still. Yeah. I know I'm you know I'm in my um, early forties, but. And I have some grace, but I'm uh, I, I'm truly a fan, and I, I I love what I do, and I just you know I you know I do I also have a lot of young people working at Insomniac that that bring ideas to the table. It's not just me, you know. Yeah. I have an amazing team, and some of them are. You know, I have a bunch of millennials that were going to our parties, and now are in our working in our office. So they. They also help with a bunch of ideas. I can imagine like virtual reality would be very interesting to you. What are some other kind of things, you know, you're talking about stuff you still want to do, you know, what are, what are some things that are popping into your mind? Well, I want to build a festival theme park for sure. You know, we spend so much money. We waste so much money that the fans, they could be, they could be benefiting. They could be um, benefiting from these dollars that are spent on just tearing the productions down and putting them up, tearing them down, putting them up. I mean, it's it's a big production. There's a l- lot of moving parts, um, and to be able to keep investing in a place and things actually continuing to be there and then adding to it and adding to it, you know, that's a cool idea. Yeah, Would I'd it be indoor and outdoor? Would it be like age limits? How would you do that? I'm curious. Actually. Well, some events know. might have age limits. Yeah. Some events might be, you know, all nighters. Some might right. be daytime. Um, you know, some, you know, I, I definitely imagine different areas that have different concepts behind them. You know, recreate a Bezo over here, warehouse party over there. You know, the kinetic field, which is our one of our largest stages at EDC. You know, o- open the whole park, open half of it, only yeah. open one area. Yeah. Depending on, you know. You must be this high to enter. Yeah. Oh, whoa, double entendre there. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, bring exactly. some old school. Bring like a. Actually, I just was thinking about this the other night. I was thinking, I'd like to bring in the old um, 
trains from New York and and like graffiti them and have them go go around the whole festival site, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I don't, you know, it's it's endless what the ideas. I mean, well, I'll never be done till the day I die. I'll never be done improving the events. There's yeah. always something more you can do. There's also there's always there's always new technology. Yeah. You you mentioned virtual reality. I mean, so many people have talked to us about virtual reality and bring these really amazing ideas to us. So that's on that's the, a, that's another hand, way. Like virtual reality is very private somehow as well, right? And and part of the whole attraction and and promise of EDM and and the rave scene and and what it's become now is the connectivity between people, right? Like the looking at each other, t- checking out, you know, jank, each other's Janko pants, which I didn't know, but <laughs> first name James, our engineer, uh, who was a DJ in Orlando in the rave scene, he just told me this yesterday. Um, and he rocked Janko pants before he came in, not today, but he told me about that and I had to ask him what the hell they were. What are they? I wish he wore, I wish he wore his Janko pants today. <laughs> I think, I think he's slowly starting to regret it. <laughs> yeah. The Janko actually was m- not my generation. I didn't wear Janko. Okay. Although, yeah, but Janko was a clothing line that was heavily affiliated with dance music culture. Right. A lot of ravers. Super wide pants right just like huge pants that bell some, bottoms kind of almost that, but like bell bottoms that started at the upper thigh yeah okay yeah All right. yeah yeah i think I saw with just one. with giant embroidery yeah. um on the back pockets like characters and or the word jinko and different has the style come back by the way as you know how fashion always moves in cycles like is that early rave scene fashion is it cool for the kids to wear that today or is it like i don't know skinny jeans and like hippie um uh hats it's funny you mentioned jinkos and whether they're coming back because at middlelands a festival that i that i did earlier this month um there was someone rocking some big ass jinkos and i thought that guy's an old school raver yeah so i've kind of nodded your head in respect yeah i i know you you've been around (laughs) but um no I, i you know you bring up fashion i actually there's not really a fashion attached with dance music right now and that's why we we've just launched. I've just launched. Speaking of new things and exciting things, I'm ecstatic about tying in fashion with the music culture that that yeah we're involved with. And there used to be a lot more of that way back in the day. And before Jinko, Fresh Jive. Are you familiar with Fresh Jive? James, am I? He says yes. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, there, there there used to be a lot of streetwear lines. Okay. That were affiliated with dance music culture fresh jive being one of them and 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 the the owner the guy who started a very creative guy he didn't mean to be you know the the rave culture clothing street line but it was very popular within the culture and then followed um many others and uh today you don't really have you know you used to be able to go to melrose and if you saw someone with a clobber shirt on or a fresh jive shirt on you could go up to them and kind of not jump and be like, hey, what what underground party are you going to this weekend? <laughs> right, right. Or come to mine. Or you know, oh, yeah, or yeah. come to mine. In, exactly. In your, in your case, exactly. Right? Yeah. Or come to mine. Right, right. Or you know, did you go out last weekend? That was insane. So you could connect with people, and I I, I liked that. I, I really liked that we had our thing. That um, you could you, you could connect with people outside of the outside of the scene in the middle of the day, so. You know, we're putting a lot of work. Actually, I'm fortunate enough to have brought on the guy who started Fresh Jive Clothing. He's amazing, super creative, talented guy. And we're 
we've been doing a lot of stuff with our we're taking merch to a whole nother level okay and uh i imagine like paying attention to the textiles right like making things breathable <laughs> you know like so it, because people are dancing for forever right so yeah we, we, we actually just made a see-through backpack so Shut you, up. you go to the pat down line yeah and you just don't even have to, you don't have to really <laughs> are you serious yeah 100 <laughs> percent. it says edc on it of course yeah of course that's of the course. only part that so you're launching from... so you're launching a, a fashion line as well like an edc themed fashion line or is it is it kind of it's not just merch with like edc on it well we we, uh, we look at every major festival as a season you know how old well clothing lines would will come out with you know a summer line a winter line a fall line edc middle lands beyond nocturnal insomniac bass rush all our all our events you know there's different looks there's different styles you know, we do events that are more uh, cross that cross over with jam band scene. You know, a little more. We'll do tie dyes at that at that yeah. at that show. Yeah, old school stuff like that. So we change it up. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, is there an item of your outfit from back in the day that you wish would come back? It's happening right now. Overalls are coming back, and I'm really excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> I used to rock huge overalls, size, you know, I was a little skinny kid, 15 years old, I'd wear size 50 overalls. And uh um, how would they stay on? They they would barely stay on. They were <laughs> they were really baggy. And Tell me you uh, wore something underneath as well. Yeah, I'd wear sometimes. Sometimes. Something. Yeah. Some boxers. And, and overalls are handy because uh, the freedom of movement, I imagine, they're not very breathable, right? But the freedom of movement, a lot of storage areas for well, the, pagers and, and like cell phones that were the size of Scud missiles. I used to clip my pager on the front. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> Either clip it on the front or like around the lollipop around your uh, neck or something. Yeah. Or the, the, what is it, the pacifier around your neck. You know what's up. Tell me you wore a pacifier. I never wore a pacifier. Okay. I wore a whistle. Pacifiers were, were another generation later. Right. As Jinkos were. Yeah. Yeah. My generation, Doc Martens. Yeah. The baggy overalls, striped shirts, beanies. You'd make your own stuff like Kangos with art that you drew on it. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of graffiti writers were, were going out into the rave scene back then. I there was this, uh, a friend of mine would make these necklaces. I, I would rock one of them. And there would be these characters, and I'd rock a character around my neck. But I also had a whistle that I was really proud of. It had gems on it. Nice. And it was it was uh, it was pretty awesome. It was very bling-y, bling-esque. Before, yeah. Like before a, that term really entered common parlance. Right? Yeah, in like a gypsy way. In a gypsy way. Yeah. You're still a bit of a gypsy, aren't you? Yeah. Well? <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate being on. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Pasquale Rotella. Next time you see him, he might be wearing an oversized pair of overalls. I had a nice chat with him, actually, after the pod on fashion. You can see some of that on our Red Bulletin Facebook page. Uh, some fun little video about him. Uh, this has been the Red Bulletin Podcast. Thank you, First Name James, the first name in podcasting, our engineer, producer T. Rizza, and Ryan Turbo Thurban. 
You can find us on iTunes. Leave a note. Tell us how, how much you like us. Help other people find us. Wouldn't that be nice? We think that'd be nice. All right. I'll see you guys next time.